Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the 1926 podcast. This week we will hear an enlightening conversation with pianist and organist Sean Barron, joined by international concert pianist Carolina Oltmans. The discussion is a prelude to a performance given by three of Sean's high school piano students, Beethoven's Sonatas, Moonlight, The Waldstein, and Appassionata will premiere as a live stream concert on Friday, April 2nd at 6 o'clock p.m. on Stambaugh Auditorium's app, The Digital Concert Hall. For more information, visit stambaughauditorium.com. Gifted by area businessman Henry Stambaugh, the doors to Stambaugh Auditorium opened in 1926 to become a place of enjoyment, entertainment, and education for the people of Youngstown and surrounding areas. These are the stories, performances, and conversations of artists and supporters of this historic landmark. This is the 1926 Podcast. Okay, well, let's start with some introductions here. My name is Sean Barron. I am a pianist and organist in Youngstown, Ohio, where I teach the piano, and I also uh, play for the Boardman United Methodist Church, and I also teach piano at Lincoln Park Performing Arts Charter School in Midland, Pennsylvania. And I am uh, very glad to be joined with Dr. Carolina Oltmans. Carolina is an international concert pianist. Uh, She's played all over the world, and she's also the professor of piano at Youngstown State University, which is where we met each other, obviously. I had the great privilege of studying with her for six or seven years, and we've been able to continue working together, uh, you know, since then. Carolina is very gracious to be here to discuss Beethoven sonatas with me today, and uh, this conversation is a sort of prelude for an upcoming performance of the Moonlight Sonata, the Waldstein Sonata, and the Appassionata Sonata, given by three of my high school students at Stambaugh Auditorium. So um, let's jump into some questions and just sort of get ourselves in a headspace, how, how we can listen to this concert and get something you know out of it. And so the first question I'm going to ask is, what is a sonata? Okay, jumping right into difficult questions. <laughs> Good, I like it. Um, sonata has uh, ooh, a very wide range of definitions, I would say. But what we are li- listening to in classical sonatas is really a bit of um, how to deal with conflict, if you will, because you have two different themes like materials. You have two different tunes, if you will. And um, these two tunes are first introduced. And then they're mixed and match in many, many different ways. So think this almost like the story of life, if you will. You meet somebody and there is either conflict or love at first sight, or there is all different imaginable ways of mixing these two concepts. And then come at the end a what's called recapitulation of those two uh, subject areas, those two characters or people, and they come away slightly changed from the experience of having been mixed and matched. And um, this is such a fun concept that there's not only piano sonatas, but 
oh, or most piano concertos have this form as well, which is called sonata form. It's easy to remember. And all the symphonies have it too. So sonata form is something that almost every composer deals with because it's just too good to pass up as a main idea, basically. Yeah. So we're dealing with two different characters that are being mixed and matched, back to be reunited to find themselves slightly changed. Nice, an interesting sort of metaphor for life there. In it's uh, just, you know, music has a way of kind of making sense of the world for us, I think, in ways that words don't do such a good job. Um, so let's just take a, a step further then. What is a Beethoven sonata? Is there anything special about Beethoven sonatas? I mean, people perform them, they talk about them, they have these special names. There's, they're, they're sometimes called the, the New Testament of the pianist's repertoire, kind of put alongside the well-tempered clavier of Bach as the Old Testament. What about these? What do you think about them? Why are, why are they so still important today? Oh, very interesting <laughs> question. So there are in altogether uh, quite a number of sonatas by Beethoven. Each of them is really like uh, in itself a, a universe, if you will. Mm. And why are they important? There are very, very many reasons for that. First of all, alongside with the sonatas by Beethoven, we can follow Beethoven's development. So if you look at the very first and the very last, you really see how somebody's lifespan has developed. Yeah. But we're dealing with Beethoven, not with a normal person, but if I may just say it straight out, with a genius. Yes. And here the lifespan reaches much further than an average person's lifespan. He starts um, in his early works and his end reaches into the future, almost into the future where we are not even yet. So that's incredible that he was able to sort of look beyond, I will say, the end of his own oeuvre, the end of his own life. And each of them, coming back to this idea of two characters meeting and mixing and matching, each of them deals in an extremely um, revolutionary way with this concept. So he throws all the rules to the wind. Mind you, Haydn was his teacher. He probably would have turned in his grave or at least be pretty cross with good old Beethoven because Beethoven more or less didn't do anything according to the book of rules. And exactly that is why everybody comes back to them because it's like, how many ideas can you even have? It's insane. And they are all extremely compelling and all very novel and fun and, and just filled with life. Yeah, and I think it's the case that the Opus 2 sonatas uh, were actually dedicated to Haydn. And I think in some kind of like slight passive aggressiveness, I think he used kind of like four movements, which was against the norm, and the key choices were a little peculiar. And yeah, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the Opus 2 sonatas because you see the very first sonata by uh, Beethoven, as you said, dedicated to Haydn, Opus 2 number one. So this is very early in his writing because the Opus numbers go chronologically through the man's life is very similar to the Appassionata, which is one of the sonatas we will have on the program. It has a similar thematic material. It has the same key. And I want to say something to that since you brought up the well-tempered clavier. A composer writes in a key not just because they get up and sort of today I write in F minor and that's just how it's going to be. But rather, a key is a real dedication to a color, to a world, to a character, to a situation, if you will. 
So the first sonata and the appassionata sonata are in the same key and they use somewhat the same types of characters yeah. and a similar way of dealing with that conflict. Yeah, well, this is the perfect segue because I wanted to latch on. Actually, I loved how you described each sonata as being its own sort of universe. And I personally have this thing I, I say I want to bathe in the sounds of, of certain pieces of music or, or certain instruments. And Beethoven is a, a person I definitely want to kind of just almost I, I, some of his music. I want to be my almost background music as I exist, if you will. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and so then what I would like to ask next is, what you think of each of the universes of each of these sonatas so what what is the universe of the moonlight let's start there what what is that world when we experience okay well the rule breaker of the moonlight sonata is that the first movement is a slow movement that should have never happened because mm -hmm. the idea is going with a happy sad happy kind of construct of these sonatas but not so the moonlight sonata so what he does here, he even calls it quasi una fantasia, so like a fantasy. He starts with stillness, and the stillness becomes more and more radical, if you will, and breaks out in turbulence. And that's really the overall build. Um, funnily enough, though, the form of the movements, the big movements in the Moonlight Sonata are all sonata forms. So we have the juxtaposition of contrasting characters in all three movements of the Moonlight Sonata. First one, of course, being the most famous one, often in my humble opinion, played too slow, mm -hmm. if you follow exactly what Beethoven actually wrote. Um, and I do have to say that the, the titles, we're dealing with Waldstein, Moonlight and Appassionata, three titled sonatas. None of these titles were given in these cases by Beethoven right. himself. Yes, and that is definitely a consideration, but they're also like mainstay titles. It's like they're inseparable at this point from the works. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and there's a point to it because the name sonatas are the more famous ones. And this is probably because they have names. It, it so, is. I, I, I agree with that in that it's... Uh, kind of a maybe unfair to some of the smaller or maybe lesser known like there's you know the opus 54 that just gets kind of sandwiched in between the appassionata and the Balkan and no one even knows it exists half the time um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. exactly exactly well oftentimes these titles were given by publishers to make more money simply yeah. said it's just more fun if you have a piece that's called moonlight sonata than opus 27 number <laughs> two <laughs> <You know? laughs> gotta play the games <laughs> so the, the waldstein which uh, is very different obviously but i'll let you kind of talk more about that okay well talking comparing the two remember the moonlight is coming from stillness to uh and uh, very great turbulence the Waldstein Sonata, in my opinion, works quite differently. Um, the first movement of the Waldstein Sonata is very forward-driven. There is no themes, not really, not for a while. Mm -hmm. So we're not breaking away from the whole idea of having themes. We're going to rhythm, which is pretty yeah. crazy for the time. We have really practically only rhythm and harmonic landscapes playing out. But this forward-drivenness of the Waldstein first movement is followed up by complete putting on the brakes in the second movement. 
as if nothing moves that moment before sunrise and then comes the last movement which is also sometimes called l'aurore which is french and means the sunrise and it's sort of like this incredible thing that where you just want to stay you want to just be there forever it's so beautiful it's a long movement um the waldstein is in general relatively long i just played it um, it's about 24 minutes long and there is forward drivenness and then a moment of wait 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 for it and then comes this resolution into this incredible beautiful place that you want to stay in forever yeah that, that last minute it's, it is like warm sunshine i, I like that yes in a, at this point i, I think i should mention a, you've recorded the moonlight sonata i think it was was that your first solo album in... I think so, yes. And I was actually debating for a long time about the tempo because if you put something on a recording in a mm -hmm. CD, there's no more taking it back. But I thought, you know, let's just stay true to the score. And yes. Beethoven writes Alla Breve in Adagio. So we are dealing with a, I think, swifter motion than most people play. I, I agree, actually. It, it, and then I think you've also recorded the Waldstein, and I believe you also performed the Waldstein in the Christman Room in Stamble Auditorium. Is, I did? Right? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, that was a memorable... Uh, the 88 Hearts concert. Oh, yeah, I loved playing there. It's just, Stamble Auditorium is just the most gorgeous place in the world. Yeah, really? And yeah, the Waldstein Sonata, as all these sonatas develop uh, over my life, and, and that's very fun. I think most artists would say the same thing as you get wiser, I hope. Um, you sort of bring more to the table, and these sonatas bring more to the table, too. Yeah, and, and so... Let's move on then to the last of these three that we're talking about, and certainly not the least, uh, the Appassionata. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the Appassionata got hit its title, funnily, from a forehand arrangement of the oh piece. Gosh. I did not know that. <laughs> so, actually, uh, it was not done by Beethoven, uh, but a contemporary called Kranz, and this person just decided, okay, I'm going to make a forehand arrangement, which was very typical. Beethoven made quite a lot of forehand arrangements of his own works as well. Forehands meaning two pianists on one piano. Basically, you get a lot more sound and more fun out of the instrument if both people play on it. And this person, uh, just uh, about a decade after this piece was published, wrote an arrangement for two um, for two pianists uh, on one piano and called it Appassionata, probably to sell the arrangement. And that title got stuck. Interesting. Very interesting. But I don't know how well the <laughs> Appassionata lends itself to be arranged for four hands, but well, that's what it and that's where the title came from. It speaks to the times a little bit, I think, also in that I think it made the music more accessible in an era where there were no recordings, right? We're spoiled nowadays, and we're talking about a performance that's going to be only live-streamed. But so these forehand arrangements of, like, symphonies, I think, came to be to, so people can sit in their living rooms and actually experience the music again without an orchestra. Of course, yes, of course. Well, um, talking about the build of the sonata, here we are back to a fast, slow, fast type setting of the movements. The famous movement, if I may uh, put myself out on limb that way, is maybe the second movement, which has been rearranged for a men's chorus and set to a sort of peaceful and somewhat victorious text. And with that has watered down, in my opinion, the meaning of it a little bit. It is much like in the other sonatas that we were comparing, 
turbulence, mm -hmm. peacefulness, and then uh, a victorious march onto our new horizons in the last movement, I would call it. And very taxing, even though I do have to say that all of the Beethoven sonatas are very taxing and potentially even equally taxing once one gets into the meat and potatoes of them. Yeah, they don't seem to get easier, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> okay, uh, but, um, okay, great. Well, I think this was a, a great conversation about these sonatas. I think we've you know talked about a lot of things that hopefully will kind of help people know how to approach this rather heavy concert, actually, in um, given by high school students, which the, I think that brings a, a certain sort of raw youthfulness that can't really be replicated unless you're really that age. And so I'm very excited to kind of see what comes out in that sense. Exactly. Oftentimes more polished and more um, experienced performers will go safer. Yes. And young players will risk basically their lives on stage. <laughs> and that can be uh, that can be a unique and wonderful experience. Very highly charged and very energetic oftentimes. So it'll be a very good concert, I'm sure. All right. Well, well thank you, Carolina, for, for talking with me and um, hope you can tune in. <laughs> thank you.